you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, we'll be looking this morning at verses 21 through 39. Matthew 15, 21 through 39. This is the Word of God. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to feed such a multitude? Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full fragments of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we thank you for these words and these actions that were performed by your Son, Jesus. And we pray that now, by the Spirit, you would open these up to us, that we would understand them, that they would sink deeply into us, that they would work transformation and metamorphosis in our lives and in our hearts and minds, that we would be to the praise of your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we saw how Jesus was in yet another conflict with the scribes and the Pharisees. They sent a delegation out to him from Jerusalem. And this is the first time we've seen this in the Gospel of Matthew. We had seen conflict with the Pharisees, but it was the first time we had sent a delegation sent from Jerusalem, which means Jesus' opposition is getting more and more official. It is getting more and more from on high. And as we have seen Jesus do before, he, re- he withdraws from the face of that conflict. 
Now, when Jesus decides, according to the will of his Father, that it is time for him to have a showdown with the powers that be, and it is time for him to go to the cross, he will set his face to Jerusalem and he will go directly to Jerusalem, even though his disciples are telling him not to. But until that time, we see Jesus withdrawing from that kind of conflict. He will stand up to it, but then he will move out of the way um, uh, until it is time for him to come and to go to the cross. So the first time we saw him do this in the Gospel of Matthew, he withdrew from Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, up into the north, uh, past Samaria, up into Galilee, where he's originally from. So he was drawing out to the to the boondocks, so to speak. This time he withdraws even from Galilee and he's gone completely into Gentile and pagan regions, the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now Tyre and Sidon were two notoriously godless cities, two notoriously pagan and godless cities. But as godless as they were, Jesus has already said in the Gospel of Matthew that they were not as hardened as some of the cities of Galilee. He's already made the point that these cities who had a wide reputation for being very pagan and very godless were not as bad as some of the cities of Galilee. He said in uh, chapter 11, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And this is a phenomenon that we have seen also in the Old Testament. We see it in the book of Jonah. Uh, Israel is hardened against the Lord. God sends Jonah to Nineveh, which was the major city of the Assyrian Empire, who was a rising pagan uh, empire in the region. Jonah well knew it posed a threat to Israel, and Jonah didn't want to go because he knows the way God, uh, the God of mercy, works. And what he doesn't want to have happen is to have Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, repent because he knows God is merciful. He wants the blessing on Israel, even though Israel is hardened. And of course, that's exactly what happens in the book of Jonah. Nineveh repents in sackcloth and ashes, and that's what Jesus is saying would happen in Tyre and Sidon if the mighty works which were done in Chorazin and Bethsaida had been done there. So you have, from the very beginning here, this theme of faith and unbelief. And this theme of faith and unbelief runs throughout this entire text. But there are some other themes that run along with this theme of faith and unbelief. The theme of Jew and Gentile. Where do we find faith? Also, interestingly, is this theme of food that runs throughout as well. And particularly... Jesus' ability to provide food. Jesus' ability to provide food for Israel and for the world. This is all mixed together. Faith and unbelief, Jew and Gentile, and food. Jesus' ability to feed God's own people 
and Jesus' ability to feed the world. Now, feeding the 4,000 plus multitude, which we have in the latter part of our text here, obviously that is about food. And it's about Jesus' ability to provide food. When he says he doesn't want to send the multitude away, uh, lest they faint on the way, we see the disciples saying, well, where can we get food to feed all of this multitude? And so it's about Jesus' ability to feed. Here's God's people. Come out to him in this remote region, and they have no food. Does Jesus have the ability to feed them? You also see this theme of faith and unbelief. He's already fed the 5,000 earlier in Matthew. The disciples were there. They didn't know how he was going to feed them then. They still don't know how he's going to feed them now. Now, that's one of the things that's supposed to stand out for us. He says, you know, I I don't want to send them away hungry. And the disciples are going, well, I don't know where we're going to come up with food out here in this wilderness for all these people. You've got 4,000 men, you've got women and children, so it's probably... It's probably twice that size. You're probably talking more like seven or 8,000 people. Well, we don't know how we're going to feed these people. He's already fed the 5,000. They watched him break the bread. They watched him break the fish. They carried the food out. They picked up 12 basketfuls of fragments left over. They were there. But they don't know where the food's going to come from. Okay, so you see here again, even among the disciples, here's this theme of faith and unbelief. Okay? And um, so that's about food. But also, Jesus and the Canaanite woman, that also has the theme of food. She comes to him because her daughter is demon-possessed. She wants Jesus to have mercy and heal her daughter. And yet, listen how they discuss the healing. They discuss it in terms of food. Jesus says, it is not good to take the children's bread. He doesn't say, it's not good for me to to heal you. He says, it's not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. So little dogs, it doesn't necessarily mean little. What it means is this is the... Greek word dog here that would mean like family pets, okay? Uh, Dogs around, okay? And you have to remember that in the Old Testament, God uses the imagery of animals to describe humanity. And we have this picture in the way God uses this image is that he created us, you know, in his image. And part of that has to do with the capacities he's given us. But part of it has to do with the fact it's a very active concept of being an image. It's the image concept that you see when you look at your image in the mirror. What you do, your image does. Your image acts, it imitates, it does what you do. That's what we were created to do. And that part of the image of God was lost when man turned away from God and fell. The the capacities and, and, and those kind of things... There, uh, remain. God, uh, there's part of the image of God that remains in us, but the active part of imitating God, of doing what He does, that part was lost when the human race fell into sin, unless we are restored to that in Christ. And so in the Old Testament, 
Um, it is only believers in the one true God who are pictured as being human. As we turn away from God, as we cease imaging Him, as we cease following Him and imitating Him, and we turn in another direction, uh, God pictures us as becoming beasts. We've, we change from being what we were created to be into being beasts, okay? And so you will have uh, uh, unbelievers pictured as dogs, as predators, as wild animals, as teeming insects or teeming uh, sea life and stuff like that, mindless uh, kind of crowd, chaotic activity, all of that kind of stuff. In fact, in the book of Daniel, uh, when God pictures in a uh, dream, when he pictures the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar, he pictures it in this way. He first shows Nebuchadnezzar as a lion uh, with wings. So he's this great lion with wings. And so he's a wild beast, very powerful, uh, very, uh, in a sense, august and awesome. But he's a predator and he's a beast. But as Daniel watches this vision, the wings come off of the lion. The lion stands up on his back feet and becomes a man. Well, that's the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. He goes from being a beast, however powerful and glorious he may have been, he goes from being a beast to being human. That's the way conversion and faith is pictured. And so oftentimes... Uh, Pagans, those who don't believe in God, are pictured as wild animals or as dogs. And that had uh, come to be uh, the typical Jewish word to refer to Gentiles by the time of the first century, was to call them dogs. Now, some of that there's a theological basis for, okay? Because just acknowledging that if we turn away from God, to that degree we cease to become fully human. And the further and further we turn away, the more bestial and inhumane and inhuman we become. And we can see this when we study history, when we look at societies that turn away from God. Okay, but you have added into that, not just uh, God's people looking at that and seeing it as a lamentable thing, that you're calling people to true humanity by calling them to the one true God, but you also had this prideful thing going on in Israel where they looked down upon uh, pagans with a kind of a contempt and kind of a prideful exceptionalism toward themselves where as though it's something in themselves that makes them uh, and gives them the relationship that they have with God. And so you have all of that going on, and that's what Jesus is uh, appealing to. Now, it's interesting that Psalm 22, which is Jesus' prayer on the cross. If you want to know the mind of Christ on the cross, read Psalm 22. It's quoted in the Gospels, and he talks about their uh, being on the cross, his bones being out of place, all of these different things, being pierced, all of these things. But one of the things he says is that the dogs have surrounded him. The dogs have surrounded him. So you get like a pack of wild dogs have surrounded him. That's one of the ways Jesus describes his crucifixion. And of course, there he's referring to the crowd. But who is this crowd that was yelling out, give us Barabbas and not Jesus? Well, these are all Jews. 
and the fact that they're referred to in this psalm as dogs, you can see the theological significance. What is being said there by God, what is being said there by Jesus, is that the mere act of circumcision, the mere, the mere uh, felicitous thing of having Abraham's blood in your veins does not take you from being a dog to being human. It doesn't do that. It takes the faith of Abraham to change you from being bestial to being human. And this crowd did not have the faith of Abraham, and so they're referred to in the same terms that would be referring to Gentiles, and that is dogs. And so that's what's going on here when Jesus says, it is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. Now notice how she responds and talks about this healing and this request, this plea she's making to him. Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs. She's talking about food too. So this food theme is running throughout this entire passage. They're discussing what she's asking Jesus to do, to have mercy upon her, to heal her daughter in terms of food. And I think this helps us understand Jesus' gruff and cold-shouldered response to the woman. A lot of people have stumbled over this text. When she first comes to him, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. He answers her not a word. It's like she's not even there. She just keeps on moving, doesn't even answer her. It gets to the point where the disciples are saying, Lord, send her away. Now, it's not clear whether they're saying, you know, uh, do what she asks so she'll stop bothering us, or whether they're just saying, make her go away, but they're definitely saying, make her go away. She keeps crying out. She's driving us crazy. And then he says to them, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She's not a Jew. I wasn't sent to help her. Okay? And then she comes and worships him, saying, Lord, help me. And then he says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. So this is a very gruff, cold-shouldered response to this woman. Not once, but about three different times. I think this theme of food and of Jesus' ability to feed Israel and the world helps us understand why Jesus is doing this. And it also explains the importance of the seven large baskets full of fragments that were left after feeding this 4,000-plus crowd. There are seven, in other words, you start with a very small amount of bread and a very small amount of fish. You feed somewhere probably around 7,000 people, and then you end up with more food afterwards by far than you had when you began. That's the picture. I think it's the significance of the seven large baskets full of fragments, as well as, back in chapter 14, the 12 baskets left over 
when Jesus fed the 5,000. So that would have been 5,000 men. You had wives and children and so forth, so that's probably eight, nine, ten thousand people, an even bigger crowd. So Jesus feeds maybe seven thousand here. You have seven baskets full of food left over. Jesus feeds more like nine or ten thousand before. You have twelve baskets left over. The more people Jesus feeds, the more food there is left over. And that's an important thing for us to see. You see, envy, envy toward Gentile believers will be one of the biggest stumbling blocks for the Jews in terms of responding to the gospel. It is something you will see throughout the book of Acts. A couple of different chapters you can read, Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 17. Two different instances where the gospel comes to a particular uh, town. And Paul, of course, takes the gospel right to the synagogue. And you have a situation in both of these places where many of the Jews start to respond to the gospel. They're responding to the gospel. And Paul is urging them to continue in the faith in Jesus. But then we're told that those Jews see Gentiles responding to the gospel and that they become envious. And then they begin to oppose the gospel and to persecute Paul and Barnabas. So this stumbling block at seeing Gentiles. You see, many of the Jews of that day, many of them, if not most of them, felt that if Gentiles can come into the kingdom of God, if Gentiles can receive all the blessings of the God of Israel and of the kingdom of God without first becoming Jews, that is, without first becoming circumcised and taking on the yoke of the law of Moses. And that, and that particularly important to them would be taking on the yoke of the ceremonial law, taking on the yoke of the dietary code and of the cleanness code, the things you could touch and not, and the things you could eat and not eat, all of that, taking on that yoke. Uh, They felt like that was tantamount to God taking away the kingdom food that he had promised to his children and for which they had waited for so long, so many centuries And now he's taking away the promised kingdom food from the children and he's giving it instead to others, to Gentile dogs, no less. So they saw this as really being a big bait and switch on God's part. All these promises that they've been waiting for for centuries and centuries and centuries waiting for these promises. And now... You don't even have to be a Jew to receive them. You don't have to take on this yoke of the ceremonial and ritual law. It's just going to the Gentiles. It's like God's changing everything. He's changing His promises. And that meant that God is not faithful. He's not true to His word. He's changing everything at the last minute. And this is why Paul in the New Testament, in his epistles is so concerned to establish 
God's righteousness, that is, His faithfulness to His promises. Remember that in the Bible, righteousness is a Hebrew concept. It's not a Greek concept. It's not a concept of some kind of an abstract, uh, simple moral uprightness. It's all relational in the Bible. Righteousness is relational, and what it means is you are in a particular relationship everything that you should be. You give to the other person everything you should. And that means if you make promises, you keep them. And so the closest synonym we have to the Hebrew concept of righteousness is faithfulness. 1 John 1.9, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins when we confess them. It's two ways of stating the same thing. And so Paul is very concerned in the New Testament to establish the righteousness, that is the faithfulness of God, to keep His promises that He made to His people in the Old Testament. And Paul's main point is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not represent a failure of God's promises, as many Jews were saying. This is a failure of God's promises. He's just wiping them out and changing everything around. Paul is saying, no, it doesn't represent a failure of God's promises to Israel, but a fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, all of them. And that's what he's showing, how all of God's promises to Israel are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So that as he says in Galatians 3.29, he says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. By being in Christ, you receive every promise ever made to Abraham or to his descendants, such as David. And that's the point he's trying to make. But the point here that Paul's also trying to make, that I think Jesus is trying to make in this uh, passage, is that God's covenant people were never meant to be the reservoir of God's salvation, but the river of God's salvation to the world. God's covenant people, Old Testament and New, were never meant to be the reservoir of God's uh, salvation, but the river of God's salvation to the world. And that's what Jesus is establishing and Paul is establishing. It's like, no, God isn't changing things when salvation is flowing through you to the Gentile world. That's the way it's supposed to be from the very beginning. You're supposed to be the river, the conduit of God's salvation to the world. You're not supposed to dam it up and hold it for yourself. That's why you have in Ezekiel 47 the whole vision there of the water coming out from God's altar in the temple. There's this trickle of water that's coming out from the altar and coming out of the temple, and it's flowing out and away from the temple. And the more it goes, the further you go with it, the deeper it gets. It's just like the baskets of food left over. The more Jesus feeds, the more food is left over for the world. The more of God's children there are to feed, the more food is left over for the world. The further the river flows away from the temple, the deeper and wider the river gets. And wherever the river goes, it says, there is life. Everything the river touches turns to life. The river flows into the sea, and the sea turns from salty to sweet. That's the picture in Ezekiel. And so 
Paul and Jesus are basically saying to Israel, it's like, you've got this whole envy thing going on with the Gentiles, because, and you're accusing God of unfaithfulness because you don't understand what God was doing from the beginning. You're supposed to be the river of His salvation to the world, and that's now what you're seeing. So why are you upset about it? So the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ are sufficient to feed not only Israel, not only God's covenant children, but also all the world. And that's the significance of the baskets of leftover food. And as I pointed out before, the more Jesus feeds, the more food is left over. And that's what the woman of Canaan was saying in her reply to Jesus, whether she fully understood it or not. When she says that the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the table. You see, here's the significance of that. What are crumbs that fall from the table? Crumbs that fall from the table are not food taken from the children's mouths. Crumbs falling from the table are the natural result of children being fed. Do you see the difference? Crumbs falling off the table onto the floor are not food being taken from the children's mouths. It is the natural result of children being fed. Have you ever had little kids? You know, have you noticed food all around wherever they have been eating? Okay, is that because you took food out of their mouth and threw it on the floor? No, it's the natural result of children eating. The more they eat and the more children they are, the more you have food all over the floor. And that's what she's saying to Jesus. It's not a matter of taking food out of the children's mouths. And so Jesus' response to the Canaanite woman in initially ignoring her and then saying that he's only come to the lost sheep of Israel and then telling her it's not good to take food out of the children's mouth. This is a way that Jesus is signaling his commitment to feed God's covenant children, that he is not going to ignore them, that food going to the world is not going to take anything out of their mouths. It's his way of signifying that giving food to the world would not take one crumb from the mouths of God's children. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't you worry. In fact, the more God's children eat, and the more of God's children there are to feed, the more the world is fed. The more the world is fed. And in, with Jesus' case, it's not a matter of crumbs falling from the table. It's baskets full. It's baskets full of food. And so we see this amazing uh, principle. But eating, and here's another major point from this passage, eating is a matter of faith. Eating is a matter of faith. Eating is a matter of believing in Jesus. Something that many Israelites, unlike this Canaanite woman, refused to do. Now, notice where she is from. Canaan. 
And that's not an insignificant detail. Jesus is already out in the region of Tyre and Sidon, these two godless pagan cities. But this woman is even worse. She's a Canaanite woman. In terms of the Old Testament imagery, you cannot get more pagan than being a Canaanite. The very people that God's people were to come in to and to, and to wipe out and to replace. She is a Canaanite woman. And here she is coming to Jesus. And what she's doing is showing us how to eat. She's showing us how to eat because it is a matter of believing in Jesus. Now, like spoiled children, many of the Israelites were refusing to eat. And they're complaining about the dogs eating their food off the floor. So the food falls off, goes to the floor, nothing's being taken out of their mouths, but now they refuse to eat. And they're complaining about the food that the dogs are getting on the floor. And God here implicitly, as a wise father, is telling the petulant children that they have it backwards. If you can't figure out what to do with your food, look at the dogs and do likewise. Because this food that they're eating did not come from your mouths. If you can't figure out what to do with your food, look at the dogs and do likewise. The table of God's children was always meant to overflow to the world, and that is still true today. The Lord's table is for the world and is meant to draw the world. The Lord's table is for the world and is meant to draw the world. A very good book that you can read about that is one by Alexander Schmemann, who was an Eastern Orthodox priest, uh, but it's called For the Life of the World. And he's talking about this very concept. So the table of the Lord is for the world and it is meant to draw the world. So if we as God's children want the world to come and be fed, which is something that we should want. We don't want to be a reservoir. We want to be a river. We want the world to come and be fed. The first thing we need to do is what we see this Canaanite woman doing. We need to believe and we need to eat. We cannot give food to the world if we are not eating, if we ourselves are not doing what we want them to do. Come to Jesus, believe, and eat. How do we eat? Well, are you coming to Christ? Are you coming to Him? Are you coming to Him in His Word? If you never spend any time in God's Word, I'm sorry, you're not eating. You're not eating. Now, when we come together to hear God's word, we're all eating together. But you also need to be eating in your families together, and you need to be eating individually as a Christian. You need to have time with God in his word. 
you need to have time with God in prayer. And you have a whole Psalter to give you good examples of prayers to God in all kinds of circumstances. You need to believe and eat. And see, here's the thing. If you're not eating, you're not believing. That's the thing. If you believe, you're going to eat. You're going to eat. And so you, you have to do, you have to change it around. Instead of having to look at the dogs and do likewise, you want the dogs to be able to look at you and to do likewise. Eat. You're not going to use up all the food. You don't need to be stingy. This is the one place you don't need to be on a diet. This is the one food you can eat, all you can eat, and it's fine if it doesn't all go in your mouth, it overflows, falls all around you, that's just fine. That's the way God made it. Eat all you want, eat all you can take. I know life is busy. Life is busy. And as you get older, uh, kids, if you're in school, if you're in junior high, if you're in high school, uh, you're probably thinking, oh, life is busy. And it is. You got, you got classes, you got activities, you got other things going. Uh, it's busy. But you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till you get married, wait till you have children, wait till you got all of that going on, jobs and everything else, and you're going to really see what it's like to be busy. But you know, God, that's okay. He made life, He gets it, He understands. He's busy. He understands that. If, if we believe, we're going to find time to eat. We find time to eat physically in the midst of our busy lives, even if we have to eat in the car driving down the road. If we believe, we're going to eat. And that's the first thing we need to do if we want God's food, His life going to the world. Believe and eat. Believe and eat. That fills you up so that you're exemplifying the life that you can tell others about. They see a difference in you. They see a difference in your life. They, they want you at some point to explain. And you can talk to them about Christ. And you can talk to them about God. But it will be very hard to convince them if you're not believing and if you're not eating. Next week... We will focus in and look at the Canaanite woman and the specifics of what she is teaching us about faith. Jesus describes her faith as great. And next week, we're going to look at the characteristics of great faith. But for this week, believe and eat. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.